look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popowich. How you doing, buddy? I'm good, Faisal. How about you? It's warming up. Hooray! <laughs> Hooray! Yeah. I don't have to move out of this city because it's so cold. Oh, I had to shovel so much snow. Yeah. Anyways, let's hope. <laughs> let's hope spring has arrived. No more head fakes here. It would be nice. I've realized something, my friend. I have to look out the window every morning yeah. and realize what season we're on. I know, I know, I know. But you know what's interesting is is we 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 didn't really have a fall. Like it was beautiful. Remember? It was Do we beautiful. ever have a fall? Well, I think fall is the nicest time here. But temperature it's the nicest you, day. That's all it is. One day. No, no, no. Generally, the fall is pretty long. But we had really nice weather until it fell off the cliff. Stayed off. The, we were at the bottom of that cliff for a long time. And I suspect what's going to happen. My guess. I'm not a meteorologist. Hate mail goes to Faisal on this. <laughs> it probably we wait till the spring is gone and then it just ramps up. Wow. Okay. Thanks for that. Has nothing to do with our show, though. I know. Good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we better, this tells you how forecasts are made in the real world. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Perfect. Yeah, I'm not a meteorologist that I mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, what's going to be on the show today because we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about wills and estates, and um, there's a bunch of aspects of complexity attached to this. How do you protect your wealth? How do you transition your wealth? Uh, uh, probate fees. Yeah, you, there's what, fees if you if you pass away. Yeah. And, and people need to be aware of that. And they don't call it a tax in this province or in any province. They call them a fee. Uh, I think it's the same thing. In in some provinces, you have to pay a percentage of your assets. Right. And so those are called probate fees. And so what is probate? What are the fees that are incurred? How can you minimize or avoid them? Should you? Uh, those are the type of things that we need to discuss because that erodes some of the wealth that you've uh, you've accumulated, and there's multiple jurisdictions. Don't forget, yeah, people own property in different provinces and different countries. So you need to look at how that impacts, or does that impact your overall uh, estate? We, those are the kind of things that people are talking about yeah. when it comes to their estate plan. And because you're an Albertan and we don't have a probate fee here, does that mean you are not subject well, to probate? We have, a, we have a probate fee. It's just not well, a percentage. Yeah, Four hundred bucks. But, but we'll talk about that. Yeah, you bet. Okay, uh, but does it mean that, that you're exempt from other jurisdictions if you own? Like you said, uh, land in BC. Is multiple an assets in multiple jurisdictions. You got How's it. That? Okay, uh, we'll talk about that. We've got a seminar coming up uh, on Tuesday. Let's remind everybody about that. Yeah, people hate taxes for some reason. I don't know why, but we're gonna we're gonna talk about why most people don't like paying taxes. Or in my view, I don't like overpaying in taxes. My biggest pet peeve. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about how tax can be the biggest drag on your retirement and how you minimize that on Tuesday, April 17th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. <laughs> Uh, you know, we were doing some research this week uh, and researching uh, a little bit about uh, exchange-traded funds, ETFs. Correct. Right? And I've had some conversations over the last little while with people, uh, both clients and just, you know, interested Calgarians about uh, about exchange-traded funds because we hear a lot in the news that they're inexpensive. Yeah, and I think we should narrow it down a bit, Dave, on this conversation about indexes, not okay. just exchange-traded funds as oh, a whole. Oh, hang on. Slow down, Tiger, because I think a lot of people, uh, the press uh, uh, presents this financial instrument called an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, as really one kind of an instrument, right? 
So we got to talk about yeah, a number of different fair. things because most people will think of inexpensive index exposure, but what does that really mean? And then there's a complexity well beyond just what that is, right? Yeah. So uh, let's. I want to take this for a segment. If you're cool with that, Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about uh, a little bit about what exchange traded funds are, um, what their biases are. Like, let's educate people about what they do, what they don't do. Correct. Right. Are they inexpensive or not, right, Correct. in terms of their buried costs? Yep. And kind of the extent of the complexity of where you can go with these things. Yep. Right? Where do you want to start on that conversation? Let's, let's start off with kind of giving an overview of what the differences are in, in some of these exchange-traded funds to okay. kind of lay out the, uh, the foundation of okay. this conversation. All right. So l most people, I would say, when asked about it or when they ask me about an exchange-traded fund, the question stems from uh, passive index exposure, right? If I want to own the S&P 500, as an example, can I, I can do that through an exchange-traded fund. I don't have to buy all 500 stocks. It's not a mutual fund in the sense that it is just mimicking the performance of what the index is doing, less whatever embedded costs there are in that product, yep. right? Both from a risk and a return perspective. And that's kind of the extent of their understanding of the exchange-traded fund, right? And in a year like last year, where the S&P 500 had a fantastic return year, right? Why wouldn't we own that index? And just that index. Just that index. Now, let's forget about the whole conversation about diversity, portfolio construction, and so on and so forth. Let's just bring to light sort of the elements of, of that, that exchange-traded fund, what that product does. Now, I said a couple of things there. Faisal, we'll get your comment on this. What, it, uh, what, a, what a, a basic passive index uh, ETF does is it gives you exposure to the underlying securities in that index, right? Let's Correct. just use the S&P 500, the 500 largest stocks okay, in the United States that make up the S&P 500. You can buy a um, or invest in an exchange-traded fund that will get you a one ticket, like one ETF, get you exposure to all of those 500 stocks. Correct. Right? That's accurate. Correct? And it's cheaper than buying all 500 companies. Yeah. That's why they invented that product. And that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Now, let's talk about the index itself because the index is a market weight index. Right? Yeah, which is very confusing, I think. I think right. people don't understand how the index is derived. Yeah, how's an index built? In this particular case, the S&P is a market cap weighted index, which means uh, Apple has a uh, market capitalization that is the number of shares outstanding times its price. Correct. Okay, and that gives it a market cap. Now, that market cap, capitalization of, the, of uh, Apple, is the largest in the S&P 500. And therefore, it has the biggest weight. So instantly, by investing in a passive index, an uh, S&P 500 index, you have a concentration risk in those companies that are the largest weight or the biggest weight in the index. So let me give you an example. Apple is about 3.8% of the S&P 500. So when you buy the ETF, you're, in, you're actually buying 3.8% of your money in Apple. Right. It doesn't sound like it's a lot, right. but here's where the problems lie in, a, in an index itself. Forget the fund, but the index itself. How they determine how much percentage goes into a stock is based upon the market capitalization. Right. And as the market cap or the size of the company's value goes up, more money is attributed to that weight. So you could get to a point where you have a heavy component in one stock. And I'll use the Canadian example back in 1999-2000, the Nortel factor. The, the TSE back then had a huge weighting in Nortel. Yeah. And so when Nortel did what it did and it fell, so did the TSX or the TSE back then 
and a, and a higher value than if you had all of those companies on an equal weight basis. Right. Right. And so here is the fundamental problem with indexes and using that passive. as an, a passive, an index okay. itself. Just an index. And, and then the, the okay. fundamental issues of the index and what can go wrong with that index. Right. Okay. And investing in it. Mm -hmm. what, what the problem is, is that when you are investing in an index and the market capitalization of a, of a stock goes up, you have more of your money in that stock. Right. So you're buying more as the stock goes up. Then when the stock falls and its market capitalization drops, you sell more of that stock as it goes down. Effectively based on the weight, right? That's what you're saying. Correct. So you are buying more when it's going up. You're selling more when it's going down. And that is the principle of bad investing. Sounds a bit like buy high, sell low. Correct. Oh. And I think this is a problem. Now, I know we don't have much time on this segment, but I want to take this to the end of the show where we're going to talk about the problems and the solution right. to that strategy. So you don't have to say in an index investment, you can still have an ETF, an exchange traded fund, or a investment strategy that can minimize the risk, still give you the exposure, and potentially, in our, in our analysis, outperform the market over the longer term. And we'll talk about how, how that strategy works. We've got research from around the world coming out of Paris and everywhere else mm -hmm. uh, that talks about this. So we, we'll give you more information on that. Okay. Um, now, we did remind everybody about the uh, the upcoming seminar. It's happening on Tuesday, uh, Faisal. We've had uh, terrific crowds. Lots of very interesting questions this year. Uh, really interesting. And maybe that's due to the volatility that we're seeing in the markets now, which has been absent for the last two and a half years. Not sure. Um, but Talking about bulletproofing your retirement in an environment that seems to be increasingly scary for yeah. people yeah. Uh, is, an, is an important topic. We're going to cover that on Tuesday. Why don't we invite people out to that? Yeah, so when people who are calling in already and or emailing in based on our website to register, they're asking about our five-pillar investment strategy approach and how it profit and protects in these types of markets. We're going to have that seminar on Tuesday, April 17th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits you need to reserve your seat. So give us a call, 966-8400, 966-8400, or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Okay, and join us after the break because we're going to talk about how to protect your wealth and your estate uh, on transition. Here on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Faisal, we talk a lot about uh, lifestyle, and part of lifestyle uh, planning is transition planning. And that means will leg wills, legacies, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think when you see more and more people as they age are more concerned about how this money is getting uh, transferred over to their loved ones or mm -hmm. to charities of their choice. And, and one of the biggest concerns that I hear about, and because mainly we get a lot of the, the information coming out of Ontario, yep. um, is probate fees and what's the cost if right. I, you know, and how do we mitigate that or minimize those costs. And right. so let's have a bit of a chat about that. Yeah. Uh, and so we've got Catherine Zhang joining us today, a recurring guest with us. She's an associate at Walsh LLP. Catherine, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Maybe we can start the conversation with a bit about what probate is. Maybe you can just educate our listeners about uh, about probate, and then we can talk about its application in uh, Alberta versus other provinces. Yeah, so probate um, is a court order that um, an executor or personal representative will have to get um, in order to process some of the assets um, that uh, an individual who's passed away owns. Um, typically, probate is required if you have um, real property in Alberta or if you have a bank account with a sizable um, 
a sizable asset or wealth um, in that account, um, those institutions will require court order. And so um, if you've got a will, it's usually called a grant of probate. If you don't have a will, court order is still required, uh, but that process is going to be called getting a grant of administration. And at the end of the day, when the process is complete and you get an order, um, that personal representative will have the authority um, bestowed upon them by the court to say, yes, you can go ahead and administer this individual's assets. Okay. Um, so, got it. Now, let's talk a little bit about, there's some differences, jurisdictional differences between... Well, let's back up and probate. talk about the cost. There's a cost to this. There's a fee, a probate fee. Yeah, so I was going to say, let's and it's start, different amongst different provinces. So let's start, let's start in Alberta. Here. Let's, start yeah, home, let's talk yeah. about what the cost of probate is in Alberta. Yeah, so Catherine, yeah, let's do that. What's, what's the yeah. cost here in Alberta? Uh, so the cost to file a probate application depends on how much the estate uh, is worth. In Alberta, we're very lucky as we're capped. Um, and so as soon as you have over $250,000 um, in wealth, the highest probate court filing fee you're going to pay is $525. Um, it's staggered. So if you, for example, own um, over $25,000 but less than $125,000, they're going to prorate that fee and you're paying a $275 court filing fee right. as at, you know, today's date. Um, uh, that doesn't include the, the perhaps legal cost or accounting cost of preparing that application, and so that will vary um, firm by firm or however you manage it. But uh, the bottom line is the court filing fee is capped here, um, which is different from some of the other jurisdictions uh, in Canada. Ontario is one example. I think BC is the other example where they take a, they take a percentage depending on how big or small the estate is. So let me just jump in there and talk about what's classified under this this uh, fee for probate. When you say your wealth, let's take a couple. Uh, one member of the two um, passes away. What gets counted in, in probate in that situation? Uh, the assets that get counted are whatever ha the deceased owned in their name alone as that date of death. So if you're dealing with um, a husband and wife situation um, and they own a house jointly and they own accounts jointly, you're not going to have anything to probate because the surviving spouse will receive all of those assets outside of the estate. Um, if you're looking at a situation where an individual dies leaving a house in their own own name alone or a bank account in their own name alone, then that asset gets calculated towards um, what falls into the estate and the fee for granted probate or grant of administration. Yeah, let's just jump in there and also mention those who have RRSPs, mm -hmm. Registered Retirement Income Funds, or RIF, TFSA, they all have designated beneficiaries, maybe some insurances or insurance mm -hmm. contracts. Those all have designated beneficiaries. So, Catherine, those are exempt or out, outside of the, uh, the, the, the estate itself for probate purposes. Is that correct? Yes, so long as the beneficiary is has survived and there's no gift over to the residue of the estate, um, yes, that is exempt for probate purposes. Now, lots of people try um, different ways to avoid uh, the probate process. Again, there's a cap in terms of how much you have to pay um, in probate. Alberta. But, yeah, but there mm -hmm. can be additional costs associated with legal and so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. lots of people are still sensitive to that, and they want to try to minimize the time, effort, and cost associated with that. Tell us a little bit about some of the strategies that people use and yeah. uh, what we need to be aware of if you are going to pursue some of these strategies. 
Yeah, I think the biggest ones we see are either um, the the testator, so the person dealing with their estate, um, wanting to get to, to put assets in joint names, so indicating, well, I mean, I my intention is for my real property to pass to my kids anyways. I'm going to put one child on um, for administration purposes. Um, I mean, that's one strategy, and we can talk about after the reasons why I don't like seeing that sure. um, or, that, you know, that we would recommend against that. And then the second one is saying, you know what, I don't even need to be on title. I'm going to just transfer this asset in whole during my lifetime so that there's there's not I can take out the um, transmission fee or um, the fee for filing additional paperwork with land titles they'll just have this property outright during their lifetime and that's those are the two primary examples and those are um, two topics we absolutely talk to clients about um, during the estate planning process if Mm -hmm. probate fees are one of their concerns well, and, and a lot of people, Faisal, think, listening right now, say, oh, well, that's pretty smart, right? I could set up my kids on my non-registered accounts, and they could just take over or mm-hmm. move my house into, you know, the kids, one of the kids or both kids' names or something along those lines. That, yeah. that doesn't sound like a bad idea. So I'll, I'll take a personal situation. My father decided to do that way back in the day, and he said, you know what? I'm going to put everything mm-hmm. in joint with my son. He's the, he, he manages money for a living. Mm-hmm. He seems responsible from a reasonable distance. <laughs> Why not put everything joint with him? And then my sister gave me a dirty look when that came out. So um, the, the risks that my my father were was not thinking about. Right. Um, mm-hmm. One of them, Catherine, was, well, I'm now divorced. And so um, that could have been a problem. Um, yep. uh, I If I own a business... Mm-hmm or I have creditors, that could be a problem. Like, so let's talk about, you know, we've got a couple minutes left, but what, what are some of the problems that people should be aware of uh, mm-hmm. when, when thinking about putting their, their property in joint with somebody else besides their spouse? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest one is, um, the the biggest message we try to get out to clients is as soon as you put somebody else on as a joint owner to one of your assets, you lose full control. And I mean... Every parent goes into it thinking, you know, my kid has my best interest at heart. Um, you know, nothing bad is going to happen. And unfortunately, time and time again, we see that um, kids are infallible or kids are fallible, I, I should say. Um, and sometimes stuff happens and um, kids either get divorced or they end up perhaps thinking mom and dad don't need the money anyways and they start treating that money as their own or that asset as their own Um, and and you you see clients come in and say well I put this into joint name but now I I have lost control I don't have the ability to have a say or I don't know where my money is Um, that's that's a common problem that we see Um, and I mean on the flip side even if um, that particular child is a dream child and um, is committed to um, managing that asset pursuant to mom and dad's wishes or their parents' wishes. Um, there is also the risk uh, that other siblings, like your sister, uh, Faisal, might kind of say, hold on, wait a second, what's going on here? And um, unintended discord in the family can arise and unintended distrust. And so it, it could make um, family life or the family relationship a lot more complicated and administration of that particular asset. That's one, you know, that's one of the things. And then obviously the one for uh, the concern for 
distributing that asset in that person's lifetime right away is you absolutely lose full control of that asset. So the adult no longer has the ability to use those funds or use that house to their benefit because they've transferred it. Yeah, these are the kind of risks that we're going to be talking about, Dave. Um, when you when you build your wealth and when you're going through retirement, these are the concerns. But we're also going to talk about how you how you protect yourself in those situations. And we're going to host a seminar on Tuesday, April seventeenth, seven p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. We will touch on the legacy bucket. We will touch on the fact that this is the the number one beneficiary. I think is revenue can or CRA revenue. Well, they Canada. put their hand up. There's yeah, no question. They're, yeah, they're they're yep. there for sure. Uh, and also, your wishes need to be mm-hmm. uh, looked at. And you do a great job with our clients on that, on the wishes and working with people like Catherine on that. So, if you are interested in coming to our seminar on Tuesday, April seventeenth, seven p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits, you do need to reserve your seats. So, give us a call at nine six six eighty four hundred nine six six eight four zero zero, or go to our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. Faisal, nobody sits in front of us and says, "The gift I want to leave my family is a court battle." and discord amongst the family. <laughs> Fair. Okay, we're going to talk to Catherine after the break about some of the common mistakes people make and how to avoid those to make sure that that wealth is transitioned in the best uh, way possible for your family. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. You're with Dave and Faisal. We're talking about, uh, well, we talked about probate uh, and estate issues um, specific to probate, uh, Faisal. But the whole legacy bucket, right? This whole idea of I've built wealth, I've worked my whole life to create wealth. Um, how do I transition it? I'm going to say that the legacy that people leave is not just about wealth. It's important. Don't get me wrong. Taxes, fees, right? How to, tra- how to transition that, very important. But nobody wants to leave the legacy of a legal problem, a battle, or a broken family. Correct. And a lot of people don't um, believe that there will be one. Right. Because we have that conversation. How's the relationship with yep. your children? How is the relationship with the siblings? You know, those types of things. And, and, and I'll tell you, most of them say, yeah, things are good, right? Until maybe money gets in the middle of it or something goes wrong. You know, these are the things we need to worry about. Um, I, I think when people are putting their, quote unquote, estate plan together. Right they either have experienced or heard of the experience of going through probate or these types of issues. And it's, um, it's a fear that, oh, my God, I don't want my family member or my significant other or somebody to go through all this work. Just put everything in joint, make life easier. You know? Yeah, joint. Um, you know, one of the, it's a bit of a taboo topic too, right? I mean, uh, talking about what happens after you're gone can be difficult for couples, right? Yeah. Um, and it can be difficult for the family dynamic, you know, talking to the kids. One, many kids we know don't know what their parents have. The parents have been secretive about that, sure. right? That can lead to problems. But two, um, you know, there's all kinds of problems that can be created uh, with, if, uh, if one of the family members or somebody in the family somehow feels that they have not been recognized properly right and yeah. so there's i, I want to talk to Catherine a little bit and, and Catherine, um maybe you can give us your opinion on some of the common um i don't know if the word is mistakes or the issues that that you think people when they're putting together their estate plans should be talking about together as a couple and thinking about and then what your opinion is on on how broadly that conversation happens in the family yeah i mean i think my philosophy typically with estate planning is to the to the best extent possible um, be open with your family because um, I think 
for us, one of the biggest reasons for clients to come in and say, hey, I, I'm just not sure about the situation. Can you help me um, explain to me what my rights or obligations or um, responsibilities are with respect to this is because something's happened in the estate plan uh, that they were not a part of and that they weren't aware of. Uh, and so they're kind of checking in to make sure, well, is everything going in accordance with the way it should be going or um, should I be concerned because I wasn't named as one of mum's executors. Uh, and so for us, the biggest one is having that conversation between the couple and coming to an agreement with, yeah, who do you want to administer your estate? Um, and if you have more than one child and um, the intention is to name only one or two of them, where you have, whereas you have more kids um, and you're leaving some out, uh, it, it's, it's sometimes important to have that conversation with the kids while that planning is happening to say, well, here are the reasons um, why we've appointed only one or two of you rather than all four of you. I mean, the, the one of the easy explanations is administering an estate with four executors can be really unwieldy and sure. um, yeah. it just makes things so much more complicated. Um, there can be jurisdictional issues in terms of um, people living out of province or people living um, out of country. Uh, and so that's usually that's usually an easy way to kind of start off the conversation and, and give people he a heads up of what to expect. Um, I think a lot of the times too, um, we've started having conversations with clients about, well, um, in addition to understanding how you want to divide your property on death, let's take a look at um, whether or not you've already distributed some of your property during your lifetime or whether or not you think that mm -hmm. the kids will have some sort of expectation that, for example, if you helped one kid with a down payment on a house or you helped another kid through post-secondary education, that the other children um, you have are going to accept uh, expect some sort of equalization um, and sometimes that does come up you, you know the will says I want to divide my state equally amongst my kids uh, and the one of the kids will put their hands up and say okay but you know my my sister over here received a half a million dollars for a for a down payment during her lifetime that should be counted towards the half estate and so it's really kind of examining that and making your intentions clear once that that asset or that gift has been identified we talk about it in the will was that intended to be an advance on the estate or was it intended to be a gift and that way when the will gets read whoever the children are that are involved um, really have that chat and have a clear understanding of where mom and dad sat on the issue so that people aren't fighting about it after death. So let me ask a, a two-part question here. Let's talk about out of province. What if yeah. your executor is from a different province? And then let's flip it and say, what if you own assets or property in a different province? What do we have to be aware of? Yeah, so it's a case-by-case -case basis. The default position in Alberta is if you name an executor who is out of province, um, they will be required to post a bond on your estate, um, and that typically is purchasing some sort of insurance that's equivalent to the size of your estate. And that's just... Um, you know, Alberta's way of protecting the beneficiaries in the estate. If uh, somebody from out of province gets appointed uh, and then has access to all of the funds and absconds with money, uh, at least there's some sort of um, comparable amount in, in that estate 
available for the beneficiaries. There are some ways uh, to request a waiver of bond, and so as clients come in, we can talk to them about the different types or the different types of planning that you can do. Um, if you have uh, assets outside of the province, depending on what that province requires and depending on what type of asset you own, um, you may have to get um, a grant of probate or a grant of administration in two provinces. The main grant will be in the jurisdiction where the individual was domiciled or resident, uh, and then what happens is that application kind of gets duplicated in the second province in order to deal with that province's assets. So for example, if you have a vacation home in BC, you'd likely get a resealed grant for BC if most of the assets were administered. In so Alberta. are you saying that they could be paying probate in BC for that asset or no? For the BC or? asset. For the mm -hmm. BC asset only because mm -hmm. they're a resident, let's say, of Alberta. And right. So therefore, they would only be paying probate on that piece. Yeah. And probate is... Uh, um, province-specific, so typically um, provinces will only require you to report on assets in that province. And what can a client do or a family do in the event that they do have assets in multiple jurisdictions, uh, Catherine? Does it make sense to have a singular will in Alberta that encompasses all the assets, or should you perhaps have um, multiple wills, you know, to handle the jurisdictional differences? Yeah, I mean... Um, that is probably on a case-by-case -case basis. I would say, generally speaking, um, as long as all the assets are in Alberta, it's or sorry, as long as all of the assets are in Canada, it's acceptable to have one will rather than having multiple wills in Canada, uh, because then it can be confusing about which will has revoked which other will, which will is working in conjunction with the other will. So, um, you know, we would encourage clients to identify the assets that are specific in other provinces and determine whether or not they want something different to happen to that asset. But on a typical default position, it's not necessary for you to have wills in every jurisdiction that you've got um, property in, at least for Canada. Okay. Um, I think uh, we'll have to wrap it up there. We're quickly running out of time. Um, if you've been listening to this, I think, Faisal, there's lots of takeaways, is that um, as you develop uh, wealth, there comes complexity with that. Correct. Right? And you need to think a little bit about that because in the absence of that, and uh, Catherine has shared some of the horror stories um, of the outcome, uh, the potential outcomes, if you don't think about it, uh, that's, again, I go back to my comment. Nobody sits at the end of the day and says, really, what I want to leave is discord in, in the family. Yes. Right? And yep. I want all of my estate to be absorbed in legal fees in a battle. Nobody wants that. That's correct. So uh, it is important to take time to think about it. And as Catherine said, it's a case-by-case, case, so it's a family-specific basis because there's lots of, uh, you know, moving parts in the family. Catherine, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. We've got uh, input again from Catherine Zhang, who's an associate at Walsh LLP. Uh, in Calgary, and you can reach her at Walsh offices if you're interested in <clears throat> getting some input on your own personal estates. Um, you know, we're going to talk about the whole uh, wealth strategy, right? So when we talk about the four buckets and the five pillars of our investment strategy, the four buckets encompass a total wealth strategy. Yeah, and part of that, uh, when you're looking at the total wealth strategy, is do I have enough money to live off of in my retirement? How do I invest in these types of markets so I don't run out of money, so I don't have to take a big hit to my portfolio? And more importantly, how do I minimize tax? <laughs> While we're doing all this stuff as well, we're going to discuss that on Tuesday, April 17th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now, you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go to our website at morethanmoneyradio.com. 
All right, join us after the break. We're going to talk about why ETFs may be bad for you. This on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back here with David Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Um, we talked in the last segment why ETFs might actually be bad for your portfolio, Faisal. We dun, better dun, explain dun. that because I bet that got some people's attentions. <laughs> and and there, there is um, a good case for people to understand or a good reason for people to understand how some of these exchange-traded funds are are invested. More importantly, when people talk about exchange-traded funds, generally speaking, they're referring to buying the index. Right. And the premise that people have had, Dave, is that they've heard in the media, 95% of all mutual fund managers don't beat the index, right. or just buy the index. Right. Uh, that's not true. Um, the research that we've put together and we've seen uh, does not state that. Um, there are some benefits Sure. to long-term index investing. And mm -hmm. Warren Buffett being one of them said, you know, just put your money in the S&P 500 and keep it there for the next 40 years and you'll be fine. Right. Right. It's a simplified way for the average individual. Right. What I think when you get, when you um, build wealth and you look at the risks of what the markets hold, especially after a 2017, so this is very timely, um, you need to look at the intrinsics of how an index is put together. And at the beginning of the show, we were talking about uh, we picked on Apple as our example, and we said that Apple has about three to four percent of the uh, of the S and P five hundred. And as you um, in that index, if you just bought that, as Apple's value goes up and they have a larger market cap, they mm -hmm. get a larger weight of the index. Right. You end up buying a stock as it's going up, mm -hmm. and then when it drops, because all stocks do go down at some point, you go up and down. Um, <clears throat> as it drops on its market weight you start selling. So you're technically buying higher and selling lower, which is not a very good or efficient market. Right. And that's a big concern because they, they're, they're, you're actually increasing your risk. And, and, and so what people have to remember is not only is it market weight, it could be so sector focused or so biased on one sector. And when we went through the analysis of 2017, mm -hmm. we saw there was a few names that were in the in in the S and P five hundred that happened to have the largest market weight. Right. Okay. Let uh, me let me get let me guess. I'm just gonna go on a limb here. Yeah. Was there some technology in that top there? A, a few, yeah. Oh, okay. Maybe maybe the first four. Okay. So Apple, yeah. Microsoft, yeah. Amazon, yeah. Facebook held the top four holdings of the S and P five hundred. So what's wrong with that? So the problem comes in is that how correlated are these companies oh. to each other? How do they move together? Are they, are they moving in the same direction or an opposite direction? And so when you build a portfolio, you do not want everything to move in the same direction. Because when gravity sets in, the markets fall, you're going to see the exposure of that downside. And that's the biggest problem. The recovery, this is more important about people who are in retirement. Right or transitioning to in a very short period of time, less than 10 years, right. that when the markets fall, because they do fall, and you have to take that as an ownership of investing, that when they do fall, the recovery rate to get back up is longer. Right. Because if you drop by a certain percent, you need way more than that drop just to break even. Right. And when you are living off your investments, you don't have an abundance of time. Because our industry has said time and time again, just buy and hold, and everything will be okay. That's not the case when it comes to your retirement income. Right. 
Right. So there's so, a big difference. And listen, I, I, I want to be transparent here, too, because there'll be some people listening that say, hey, you guys are, you know, you're biased on this because you're industry guys and so on and so forth. And I think it's important to note that we do use exchange traded funds. These are so we're not we're not saying exchange traded funds are bad. We're educating about the good, the bad and the ugly the in risks. these different financial instruments. Right. Yes. So I don't want anybody to think that that this is uh, that this is a bias. We're transparent in that. We'll use whatever products, um, you know, financial exposures we need to get it. But what people don't understand is is the um, if you stripped out the top, you know, the FANG stocks, as we talked, the technology stocks out of the, the S&P's performance last year, you'd probably cut it in about half. Right? The return. So, the return, excuse me, that's right. So, so what people have to understand is there's a concentration risk potentially that you're taking on. Just be aware of it. You may want that concentration risk, yeah. okay? but people don't understand the product. It's too simple of an understanding to, to understand the risk that they're taking on in different uh, passive yep. index-related ETFs. And so what's the normal course of action we hear about when people bring their their portfolios for a second opinion to us mm -hmm. is that they go, well, look how well I'm diversified. I have an S&P 500 ETF right. and I bought some emerging market right. exactly. ETF. Yep. And look at that. I look great. Isn't that great diversification? And the answer is no. No, not at all. Because it, again, if you look at the weighting right. of that index, what's the number one weighting or number one and two right. in the emerging markets index? Let me guess. Is Alibaba up there? Alibaba, mm -hmm. Samsung. Tencent. Tencent. Those yep. are, again, that's the Facebook of the yep. emerging markets. Yep. Samsung makes more money on just the screens for Apple, Apple iPhone, yeah. than they do on their own product, their right. own phone. Right. So if Apple goes down because sales are not doing well, you think Samsung's going to get impacted from it? Right. So you're so you're directly saying, look, I'm I'm diversified, but right. I'm not. Right, you're not. That's right. You're taking <laughs> so, a concentration bet risk in technology. Yeah, and so we we think of it as too much of a simple idea that invest in different markets equals diversification. Right. No, it doesn't. Right. It actually could increase the risk to your portfolio. Right. And when advisors or individual investors start to think that the markets will not go down, then they're okay. Right. But we all know in reality, markets do go down. And when the next drop happens, we've already seen a 10% drop right. since the end of January. Right, from peak. Yeah. Right? Um, so if it goes another 10% and you have a highly correlated portfolio, right. they will all go down. Correlation. Let's talk about that and... Um not maybe in the nerd way that you and I would talk about it, but uh, what does that mean? Yeah. Like why is correlation important? Yeah, and I think when you have investments uh, that are moving in the same direction, right. that's correlation. When they're inversely correlated, they're moving in opposite direction, or if they have zero correlation, they don't move in the same direction at all. Right. And so I think when you start to invest in a portfolio that has high correlation within the individual investments. Now, the average investor will have a collection of good ideas at a, at a time, right. in, and they call it a portfolio. Right. So they bought a bunch of stocks, and they go, how does this all work together? We right. just bought a whole bunch. Right. We have no idea right. how they all work together. Right. Right? It, you're building a, a, a full portfolio. They all have to work together. So luckily, we have mathematical formulas that go through all this and see what's the diversification of the portfolio, how, right. how correlated is this, and what's the impacts of in the event of a downturn. So when I build a portfolio, Dave, I mm -hmm. look at that stuff. You know, you look at the amount of how much is the market immune when the markets fall. So right. we can still do well when the markets are going down. Right. We can still do well when the markets are going up. Mm -hmm. And that's called upside 
capture and downside capture. How much of it do you capture when you're go when the markets are going down right. on the downside, right. and how much are you capturing on the upside? Right. And and yeah, so this this notion the notion of we always talk about risk and return, right? The general categories of of things we talk about. It's it and it, it simplifies people's understanding of that. But um, return perhaps is a little simpler mathematical equation. But when you start getting into the risk and this notion of diversification, what does it mean? How do you measure it? Right? How do you build portfolios for it? I think that becomes really really important. So again, let's go back. We started this conversation about the potential risks in ETFs, why they might actually be bad for you. I want to broaden the conversation. We were talking about passive indexes there. Yep. Okay. So that's where kind of the 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 ETF market evolved from, right? We wanted a low cost, easy way to get broad exposure to a basket of securities. Yep. But they've become much more sophisticated over time, right? So exchange traded funds aren't just passive. They can also be active. Correct. They can be quantitatively driven, so it's driven by mathematical models. Mm -hmm. Okay. It can be actively managed um, through uh, you know some uh, uh, fundamental input. Right. Lots of different ways uh, for these things to to work. So it's important when people think about exchange traded funds now not to think just simplistically yeah. about sort of how the the press generally represents them. They can be very sophisticated. All all of them are financial tools. Just understand what tool you're, you're using for the job. And yeah. if you get the tool wrong for the job, like trying to bang a nail in with a wrench, you know, <laughs> it's a problem. It can work. It just it might not be the right tool to right. use. Right? might be an inefficient way to do and it. And I think the ETF market has evolved so much that I think it's more of the anti-mutual fund market. Yeah, there's some of that. Than for sure. the let's go into becoming an ETF. Right. Right. And so that's what the problem lies when it comes to those types of investments. They're not all... Um, cheap or inexpensive. Correct. Yeah, that's there right. are there are expensive ETFs out there, yeah. and there's a reason why there's a high cost for that. And you need to ask the question why, not just base your selection on the lowest cost, because right. that's not correlated either. Lower cost does not mean better. better returns. That's correct. And we're seeing a lot of advertising and marketing about that. A lower cost is better. Not necessarily true. All right. Okay, I think we've uh, hopefully we've raised some awareness there, and people can uh, continue to do some research on that. But we do have to wrap up uh, another show here before we sign off. Let's maybe uh, invite all of our listeners out to our next um, seminar. Yeah, our five pillar investment approach talks about this diversification, minimizing downsides, protecting you along the way, as well as making you money at, on the good times too. So we're going to talk about that on Tuesday. April 17th, 7 p.m. at the Oak Ridge Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to reserve your seat, so give us a call, 966-8400, 966-8400, or go to our website at morethanmoneyradio.com. Okay, and all of our past segments are there as well. You can have them directly delivered to you by searching for More Than Money CHQR on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. David Popowich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popowich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.